We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. The CNN Center right now is just beginning to work on this story, obviously calling our sources and trying to figure out exactly what happened, but clearly something relatively devastating happening this morning there the south end of the island of Manhattan. That is, once again, a picture of one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Well, you can see these pictures. It's obviously uh, something devastating has happened. And again, unconfirmed report that a plane has crashed into one of the towers there. We are efforting more information on this subject as it becomes available to you. Just prior to learning about the 9-11 attacks, Top U.S. leaders are scattered across the country and overseas. President Bush is in Sarasota, Florida. Secretary of State Colin Powell is in Limu, Peru. General Henry Shelton, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is flying across the Atlantic on his way to Europe. U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft is flying to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Vice President Dick Cheney and National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice are at their offices in the White House. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld is at his office in the Pentagon, meeting with a delegation in Capitol Hill. CIA Director George Tenet is at breakfast with former Oklahoma Senator David Bourne. At around 9 a.m., Vice President Cheney later would say that he is in his White House office watching the television images of the first World Trade Center crash wreckage. According to his recollection, he was puzzled. The staff members elsewhere in the White House are apparently unaware of the emerging crisis. Dick Cheney would have a different mindset when he sees the images on TV. However, not everything is as it seems. Well, it was a normal kind of day, at least it began that way. I got my intelligence brief at uh, home at the vice president's residence uh, about 6.30 in the morning. I was in the uh, in my office by about 8, which was kind of a late start, but the president was out of town that day, so we didn't have our normal early morning meeting. And um, I was in my office working with my 
chief uh, speechwriter. My assistant called in uh, from uh, the outer office, and she said that uh, an airplane had just hit the World Trade Center. And so I turned on the television, and of course you could see the, the smoke. My immediate reaction was to think that it was extraordinarily unusual to have uh, an accident like that on such a day. You know, hit the World Trade Center, an airliner, not a cloud in the sky, beautiful September morning. And uh, then as we watched, we saw the uh, actual second strike when the uh, second airplane came in. A number of people were obviously visibly shaken by what was going on. They hadn't been through that kind of experience or training before. But um, the, uh, the rank and file, if you will, uh, an awful lot of our folks uh, had, uh, had the benefit of having to think about the unthinkable. We have uh, trained over the years and thought about and practiced uh, on what you would do, for example, if there were a nuclear attack uh, that threatened uh, an entire city or an all-out global conflict uh, with uh, the Soviets back during the days of the Cold War. So the, um, the complexity of the problems and so forth uh, wasn't, wasn't that strange. You need to recognize, uh, as uh, a lot of us do if we've been involved in that kind of thing before, the, um, a, a bit of uh, conventional wisdom, which is all first reports are always wrong. There's always more to come. When I walked into the emergency operations center, we had uh, um, a list of six aircraft that had been hijacked with the tail numbers. And of course, there were only four that had been hijacked, but for a long time there, we thought there were six. Counterterrorism czar Richard Clark is driving up to his gate outside the White House when an aide calls and tells him at 9.05 a.m. the other tower was just hit. Clark would respond, well, now we know who we're dealing with. I want the highest level person in Washington from each agency at the desk at the conference. A few minutes later, he finds Vice President Cheney National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice in Vice President Cheney's White House office. Cheney tells Clark, it's an Al-Qaeda attack, and they like simultaneous attacks. This may not be over. Rice asks Clark for recommendations, and he says, we're putting together a secure teleconference to manage the crisis. He also recommends evacuating the White House. However, Evacuation does not begin until 9.45 a.m. after a critical 40 minutes had passed. Rice would later note the Secret Service wanted them to go to the bomb shelter below the White House. And as Clark leaves the other two, he sees Rice and Cheney gathering papers and preparing to evacuate. Five minutes later, Clark and others, Vice President Cheney and Rice, from the White House office go to the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, also known as the PIOC, a bunker in the east wing of the White House at about 9, 10 a.m. National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, after initiating a video conference with Richard Clark in the West Wing, goes to the PIOC to be with Cheney. There is no video link between response centers in the east and west wings, but a secure telephone line is used instead. One eyewitness account, David Borer, a White House photographer, says Cheney leaves for the PIOC 
just after 9 a.m. However, there is a second account claiming that Cheney doesn't leave until sometime after 9.30 a.m. In this account, Secret Service agents burst into Cheney's White House office. They carry him under their arms, nearly lifting him off the ground and propel him down the steps into the White House basement and through a long tunnel toward an underground bunker. At about the same time, National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice is told to go to the bunker as well. In addition to the eyewitness accounts of Clark and Borer, ABC News claims that Cheney is in the bunker when he is told about Flight 77 being 50 miles away from Washington at 9.27 a.m., suggesting that accounts of Cheney entering the bunker after 9.27 are likely incorrect. President George W. Bush works with his staff to prepare a speech he will deliver at 9.29 a.m. He intermittently watches the television coverage in the room of the school. He also speaks on the phone to advisors, first calling National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, then Vice President Cheney, then New York Governor George Pataki. Bush often turns to look at the television screen and declared, we're at war. At the Booker T. Elementary School in Florida, Bush is preparing to leave, and he later claims he makes no major decisions about the crisis until after boarding Air Force One at 9.55 a.m. Transportation Secretary Norman Mineta arrives at the White House bunker containing Vice President Cheney and others. In later testimony, he recalls that Cheney is already there when he arrives. This supports accounts of Dick Cheney reaching the bunker not longer after the Second World Trade Center crash, but the 9-11 Commission concludes Cheney doesn't arrive until a few minutes before 10 a.m. When Cheney and Rice are in the bunker below the White House, they are told by an aide that an airplane is heading toward Washington from 50 miles away. This naval aide would turn out to be Douglas Cochran. The plane is American Airlines Flight 77. FAA Deputy Monty Belger would later say, well, we're watching this target on the radar, but the transponder's been turned off, so we had no identification. They are given further notices about the plane when it is only 30 miles out, then 10, until it disappears from radar. The time is unknown, but the plane is said to be traveling about 500 miles an hour and was 30 miles away at 9.30 a.m. So 50 miles would be about three minutes before that. Transportation Secretary Norman Mineta goes virtually the same account before the 9-11 Commission. However, the 9-11 Commission later claims the plane heading toward Washington is only discovered at 9.32 a.m. With the plane just 30 miles out and 10 miles out and hitting the Pentagon, what was the response of the defense of this country? Where was Donald Roosevelt? I left my office to find out what had happened. No one knew what had hit the Pentagon or what had caused the explosion uh, or the building to shake. And uh, I went, ran down the hall uh, 
on my floor and as the smoke got too bad I decided I'd better go downstairs and go outside which I did and I, I ran into a lieutenant colonel who had seen a plane told me he'd seen the plane hit the Pentagon and that's what there was the smoke and the flame and the people streaming out of the building burning and and uh, it was it was shortly after it happened that I was physically there you know you, you can't ever say you're fortunate after something like that but the plane happened to to hit a section that was not yet fully occupied and that was reinforced it had been part of the Pentagon that had been re uh, rehabilitated and fixed and it was stronger and and therefore we were as I say fortunate that the numbers weren't much larger Captain Charles Ladigue is in command of the National Military Command Center, also known as the NMCC, the military's worldwide nerve center. Telephone links are established with the NMCC located inside the Pentagon, but on the opposite side of the building when the plane impacted the West Wall. Canada's equivalent command center, Strategic Command, thereafter commanders and federal emergency response agencies an air threat conference call is initiated, and it lasts for eight hours. At one time or another, President Bush, Vice President Cheney, Defense Secretary Rumsfeld, and other key military officers and leaders of the FAA NORAD, the White House, and Air Force One are heard all on the open line. NORAD Command Center Director Captain Mitchell Jelinek claims this happens immediately after the second World Trade Center hit. However, the 9-11 Commission concludes it starts nearly 30 minutes later at approximately 9.29 a.m. Brigadier General Montug Winfield, who later takes over for Lidig, says, all of the governmental agencies that were involved in any activity going on in the White House and in the Pentagon at that point were in that conference. The call continues right through the Pentagon explosion. The impact is not felt within the NMCC. However, despite being in the Pentagon, Defense Secretary Rumsfeld doesn't enter the NMCC or participate in the call until 10.30 a.m., leading many to believe that the military chain of command from the President to the Defense Secretary were broken. As President Bush began his speech in Florida, counterterrorism czar Richard Clark orders all U.S. embassies overseas closed and orders all military bases to be on alert, named Combat Threat Con. Over the next few minutes, Clark discusses with aides where Bush should go from Sarasota, Florida. He telephones to Piak and talks with Vice President Cheney and National Security Advisor Rice and says, somebody has to tell the president he can't come back right here to Washington. Cheney, Condi, somebody. Secret Service concurs, and they do not allow the president to come back. We do not want them saying where they were going when they take off. And secondly, when they take off, they should have fighter escort. And three, we need to authorize the Air Force to shoot down any aircraft, including 
a hijacked passenger flight that looks like it is not threatening to attack and cause a large-scale death on the ground. Got it? However, when Bush departs to Air Force One about half an hour later, there are no fighter escorts, and none appear for an hour or so. In addition, if Clark requests authorization for a shootdown order at this time, it is apparently ignored. Neither President Bush nor Vice President Cheney give shootdown authorization for at least another 30 minutes. Nevertheless, Clark is not part of the military chain of command who can authorize the shootdown. At around 9.32 a.m., according to the 9-11 Commission, the Dulles Airport Terminal Control Facility in Washington had been looking for unidentified primary radar blips since about 9.21 a.m. and now finds one. Several Dulles flight controllers observed a primary radar target tracking eastbound at a high rate of speed and notify Ronald Reagan Airport. FAA personnel at both Reagan and Dulles airports notify the Secret Service. The identity or aircraft type is unknown. However, other accounts place the discovery of the plane by Dulles around 9.24 a.m. or 9.30 a.m. And Vice President Cheney is told radar is tracking Flight 77 at 9.27 a.m. Having learned that the Pentagon had been hit, Vice President Cheney telephones President Bush, who is on his way to the Sarasota airport, and tells him that the White House has been targeted. Bush says he wants to return to Washington, but Cheney advises him not to until we can find out what the hell was going on. This was at 9.37 a.m. According to Newsweek, this call takes place in a tunnel on the way to the Piak underground bunker. Cheney reaches the bunker shortly before 10 a.m. The 9-11 Commission's account largely follows Newsweek's. He reaches the tunnel around the same time of the Pentagon crash and lingers by a television and secure telephone as he talks to Bush. The Commission has Cheney enter the bunker just before 10 o'clock. But they note there is, no, there is conflicting evidence as to when the vice president arrived in the shelter conference room. Indeed, in other accounts, including those of Richard Clark and Norman Mineta, Cheney reaches the bunker before the Flight 77 crash at 9.37 a.m. Regardless of Cheney's location, as Cheney and Bush talk on the phone, Bush once again refrains from making any decisions or orders about the crisis. At some point after the White House is evacuated, Richard Clark institutes continuity of government plans. Important government personnel, especially those in line to succeed the president, are evacuated to alternate command centers. Additionally, Clark gets a phone call from the Piak Command Center where Vice President Cheney and Condoleezza Rice are positioned. An aide tells Clark, Air Force One is getting ready to take off with some press still on board. President Bush will divert to an airbase fighter escort and is authorized to land. And tell the president and the Pentagon they have authority from the president of the United States to shoot down any hostile aircraft. Repeat, they have authority to shoot down hostile aircraft. However, 
Acting Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Richard Myers wants the rules of engagement clarified before the shootdown order is passed on. So Clark orders that pilots be given guidelines before receiving shootdown authorization. Clark's account that Cheney is giving shootdown authorization well before 10 a.m. matches Norman Mineta's account of seeing Cheney giving what he interprets as a shootdown order before the Pentagon crash. However, the 9-11 Commission later asserts that Cheney doesn't make the shootdown decision until about 10 a.m. and 10.05 a.m. According to the 9-11 Commission, once again, Lynn Cheney joins her husband, Vice President Dick Cheney, in the PIOC. She had been at a downtown office around 9 a.m. when she was escorted by the Secret Service to the White House. Richard Clark describes the people in the PIOC as decidedly more political than those in the bunker below the other wing of the White House. In addition to Cheney and his wife, most of the day, the PIOC contains National Security Advisor Rice, Political Advisor Mary Madeline, Cheney's Chief of Staff L. Lewis Scooter Libby, Deputy White House Chief of Staff John Bolton, and White House Communications Director Karen Hughes. Clark is told later in the day by someone else in the PIOC, I can't hear the crisis conference led by Clark because Miss Cheney keeps turning down the volume so you can hear CNN. And the vice president keeps hanging up the open line to you. Clark notes that the right-wing ideologue, Lynn Cheney, frequently offers her advice and opinions during the crisis when it was not asked. After flying off in Air Force One around 9.56 a.m., President Bush talks on the phone to Vice President Cheney. Cheney recommends that Bush authorize the military to shoot down any plane under control of the hijackers. Bush would later recall, you bet, we had little discussion, but not much. The 9-11 Commission claims that Cheney tells Bush three planes are still missing and one has hit the Pentagon. Bush later says that he doesn't make any major decisions about how to respond to 9-11 attacks until after Air Force One takes off, which fits with the account of Bush approving shootdown authorization shortly after takeoff. Air Force One takes off the ground and quickly gains altitude. One passenger on board the plane later would say, it was like a rocket. For a good 10 minutes, the plane was going almost straight up. Once the plane reaches cruising altitude, it flies in circles. Journalists on board sense this because the television reception for a local station generally remains good. Apparently, Bush, Cheney, and the Secret Service argue over the safety of Bush coming back to Washington. For much of the day, Bush is plagued by connectivity problems in trying to call Cheney and the others. He is forced to use an ordinary cell phone instead of a secure phone. According to the 9-11 Commission staff report, Vice President Cheney is told that a combat air patrol has been established over Washington. Cheney then calls President Bush to discuss the rules of engagement for the pilots. Bush authorizes the shootdown of hijacked aircraft at this time. According to a Washington Post article, which places the call after 9.55 a.m., Cheney recommended that Bush authorize the military to shoot down 
any such civilian airliners. As momentous a decision as the president was asked to make in those first hours. Bush then talks to Defense Secretary Rumsfeld to clarify the procedure, and Rumsfeld passes word down the chain of command. Cheney and Bush recall having this phone call, and National Security Advisor Rice recalls overhearing it. However, as the commission notes, among the sources that reflect other important evidence that morning, there is no documentary evidence for this call, although the relevant sources are incomplete. Others nearby who are taking notes, such as the Vice President Chief of Staff, Scooter Libby, who sat next to him, and Lynn Cheney, did not note a call between the President and Vice President immediately after the Vice President entered the conference room. The commission also apparently concludes that no evidence exists to support the claim that Bush and Rumsfeld talked about such procedures at this time between 9.55 a.m. and 10 a.m. Commissioner Chairman Thomas Keene would later say, the phone logs don't exist because they evidently got so fouled up in communications that the phone logs have nothing. So that's the evidence we have. Commission Vice Chairman Lee Hamilton also says of the shootdown order, well, I'm not sure it was carried out, nor was it convened in time. Newsweek reports that it has learned that some on the commission staff were, in fact, highly skeptical of the vice president's account and made their views clearer in an earlier draft of their staff report. According to one knowledgeable source, some staffers flat out didn't believe the call ever took place. According to a 9-11 Commission staffer, whose name is anonymous, the report was watered down after vigorous lobbying from the White House. An account by Canadian Captain Mike Jelinek, who was overseeing NORAD's Colorado headquarters, where he claims to hear Bush give a shootdown order, as well as the order to empty the skies of aircraft, appears to be discredited. The Secret Service viewing projected path information about Flight 93 rather than actual radar returns does not realize that United Airlines Flight 93 had already crashed. Based on this erroneous information, a military aide tells Vice President Cheney and others in the White House bunker that the plane is 80 miles away from Washington. Cheney is asked for authority to engage the plane, and he quickly provides authorization. The aide returns a few minutes later and says the plane is 60 miles out. Cheney again gives authorization to engage. A few minutes later, and presumably after the flight had crashed or been shot down, White House Deputy Chief of Staff Joshua Bolton suggests Cheney contact President Bush to confirm the engage order. Bolton later tells the 9-11 Commission that he had not heard any prior discussion on the topic with Bush and wanted to make sure Bush knew. Apparently, Cheney calls Bush and obtains confirmation. However, there was controversy over whether Bush approved the shoot-down order before this incident or whether Cheney gave himself the authority to make the decision on the spot. As, New Week, as Newsweek notes, it is moot point in one sense, 
since the decision was made on false data and there is no plane to shoot down. American Airlines 11, United Airlines Flight 175, American Airlines 77, and United Airlines Flight 93 all had crashed before the order of a shoot-down authorization was given. At 10.14 a.m., according to the 9-11 Commission, beginning at this time, the White House repeatedly conveys to the NMCC that Vice President Cheney confirmed fighters were cleared to engage inbound aircraft if they could verify that the aircraft was indeed hijacked. However, the authorization fails to even reach the pilots at this time. At about 10.30 a.m., Vice President Cheney and others in the White House bunker are given a report of another airplane heading toward Washington. Cheney's chief of staff, Scooter Libby, later states, we learned that a plane is five miles out and has dropped below 500 feet and can't be found. It's missing. Believing they only have a minute or two before the plane crashes into Washington, Cheney orders fighters to engage the plane saying, take it out. However, reports that this is another hijacking are mistaken. It is later learned that that day, a medevac helicopter five miles away was mistaken for a hijacked plane. The medevac helicopter was servicing injured people at the Pentagon. Vice President Cheney reportedly calls President Bush at 10.32 a.m. and tells him of a threat to Air Force One and that it will take 40 to 90 minutes to get a protective fighter escort in place. Many doubt the existence of this threat. For instance, Representative Martin Meehan says, I don't buy the notion Air Force One was a target. That's just PR. That's just spin. A later account calls the threat completely untrue. It says Cheney probably made the story up. A well-informed anonymous of Washington official will later say to the Daily Telegraph, in an article dated December 16, 2001, it did two things for Cheney. It reinforced his argument that the president should stay out of town, and it gave George W. an excellent reason for doing so. Vice President Cheney tries to bring Defense Secretary Rumsfeld up to date over the NMCC's conference call. As Rumsfeld has just arrived there three minutes before, Cheney explains that he has given authorization to hijack planes to be shot down. Rumsfeld asks, so we've got a couple of aircraft up there that have those instructions at the present time? Cheney replies, that is correct. And it's my understanding that they've already taken a couple of aircraft out. Rumsfeld will say, we can't confirm that. We've told that one aircraft is down, but we do not have a pilot report that they did it. Cheney is incorrect that this command has reached the pilots. No pilot in the air before 10.30 a.m. were authorized to give a shootdown. Therefore, no shootdown was ever performed. Meanwhile, President Bush spends most of the time at Barksdale Air Force Base arguing on the phone with Cheney and others about what he should go next. A few minutes before 1 p.m., he agrees to fly to Nebraska. As earlier, 
there are rumors of a credible terrorist threat to Air Force One that are said to prevent him from going to Washington. President Bush at 3 p.m. begins a video conference call from a bunker beneath Offutt Air Force Base. He and Chief of Staff Andrew Card visually communicate directly with Vice President Cheney, National Security Advisor Rice, Defense Secretary Rumsfeld, Deputy Secretary of Armitage, CIA Director George Tenet, Transportation Secretary Norman Mineta, and Richard Clark. According to Clark, Bush begins the meeting by saying, I'm coming back to the White House as soon as the plane is fueled. No discussion. Clark leads a quick review of what has already occurred and issues that need to be quickly addressed. CIA Director Tenet states that Al-Qaeda is clearly behind the 9-11 attacks. Defense Secretary Rumsfeld states that about 120 fighters are now above U.S. cities. However, little bit too late to defend anything from attacking the United States for the attacks are long over. The question is whether the intelligence services knew about this beforehand or not, leaving many in the State Department and the highest officials in government to have plausible deniability. I think one of the most upsetting things about the the lawsuit against the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is uh, when you go to court and you watch the 9-11 families' attorneys arguing in court, you notice that the Department of Justice, the United States Department of Justice, is sitting on the side of the Saudis. And I think that that speaks volumes as to what the 9-11 families are up against. So uh, beyond doubt, the Kingdom has an awful lot to answer for when it comes to the 9-11 attacks. Unfortunately, the kingdom is a major player in our nation's decisions with regard to foreign policy. And for whatever reason, four administrations, five administrations, Congresses, they want to protect the kingdom and they want to keep all of the facts and information surrounding 9-11 a secret.